Personally, if I was Dak Prescott, I would be offended at being compared to Brock Osborne. Yeah, if I, like, <laughs> well, if, I, if I was Tony Romo, I'd be offended at being compared to last year's Peyton Manning, but you know. Hello and welcome to All Four Quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views and overreactions to all things NFL. This week we'll be looking at some of the news from around the league uh, and a big discussion around the Dallas Cowboys and who should be starting at their quarterback position. Then we're going to have a look at some of the games from last week, uh, take some of your questions and then we're going to look at the games from next week. So hey guys, we've got Connor here, we've got Harry. Hey. And we've also got Fitz. Hello. We're back in our uh, our old recording haunt now. Uh, my my housewife was doing her her exam, so we moved down to Harry's gaff again for for the recording. So now we're back back home, and hopefully we've got a little bit more bass in Ronan's voice because uh, we've now got a, a speaker set for him to come through. Uh, so any crack with yourselves, lads? No, not much. I've been uh, been sick for the last few days, so that's kind of kind of kind of knocked me out of things since uh, since the weekend, really. So there hasn't been a, hasn't been a huge amount going on. I am going to the Beautiful, uh, in inverted commas, city of Waterford uh, next weekend for more fun political banter. So uh, you all get to find out how Waterford is on the next podcast, which means nothing to most of you. Yeah, doesn't really mean much to us either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lie. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting. What about yourself, Ronan Lady Crack, this week? Uh, not much. Uh, in other sport-related news, the worst game ever happened on Monday evening. Uh, truly horrendous. Do not recommend. Uh, and other news... Uh, we have another new person coming up on the work. So, so how, how, how are you liking management? Have you gone all corporate now? Have you got your hair slicked back and you wear a suit to work? Yeah, well, uh, no, no, I'm more hands-off, you know. You know, a good manager, you wouldn't even notice they're there. I can't take that to heart. So. <laughs> After delegating, delegating is at the core of management. What was, uh, what was the line we used to use back in the day? If it's delegation is organisation squared. Exactly. Uh, that was our <laughs> excuse to get everyone else to do our work for us. But yeah, I've got a lot of bits to get through this week, so I suppose we'll fire on into them. Uh, we'll take a few bits of the news first. So um, the move for the Oakland Raiders to shift over to become the Vegas Raiders has had a bit of progress this week. Uh, the local council and stuff uh, in Vegas, I'm sure it's not local council, but you know, that's the equivalent. Well, state uh, legislature, State actually. legislature, yeah, whatever. Like, fucking, that's, that's Cavan County Council to you and me, right? Uh <laughs> Cavan County Council in Las Vegas have uh, passed a bill to raise $750 million of, uh, of taxes off, I believe, uh, hotel rates um, so that they can provide funding for a new stadium for the Raiders just off the strip there. Now, this is obviously a big step because uh, this is the move that Oakland were asking the, the city of Oakland to, 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 to put into place that Vegas have now gotten out in front of and said, we can sort out this funding for you. It's a big step towards moving a franchise there and also puts additional pressure on, on the politicians in Oakland to try and provide something to try and keep them. I believe there was a, an ex-49ers owner uh, involved in trying to raise funds in Oakland now to keep them there. But um, do we think this is something that's going to push this along further? Or is this something that's merely... Like the league will still take a stance against the gambling and the image of Las Vegas and still try to, to, to shut this down and stop it from happening, Fitz. If I were a betting man, I probably still would bet on them staying in Oakland. But I think the chances that they'll end up in Las Vegas have increased significantly with them getting past this hurdle. I think basically within Las Vegas, there was some consternation over the funding for this project. People saw it as diverting uh, funding away from a local convention centre and apparently it doesn't have the entire backing of Sheldon Adelson who's obviously quite a a well-known billionaire in the space in Las Vegas. 
So I think getting this path is an important first step to show their credibility. But I think the NFL would still probably prefer to be in the Oakland uh, market. I think in particular because Oakland right now is an area which is more or less gentrifying and is much closer to the kind of market that might be a more considered a more growth market for the NFL. Like Vegas is an interesting proposition, but as a as a native franchise of a native city, it, while it has decent demographics, it's still seen as fundamentally one where you know it's about attractions, it's about tourists, about people coming in. I think building a like uh, in-house gentrified type of fan base in Oakland is obviously something they'd rather keep, as well as basically being less problematic in terms of having to deal with the whole thing of gambling. Right now, they'd be willing to do it if they have no other choice. But if Oakland can get its stuff, like the Oakland and the city council in that area can get their stuff together, I would still give them a very good chance to retain the Raiders. But Las Vegas is pushing them hard, and they need to keep an eye out because it's by no sense guaranteed. And you know, who who knows? Maybe there'll be a surprise twist, and San Diego will end up being the team, and losing its team to Las Vegas. As we know, with these kind of billionaire play things, anything is possible. Yeah, no, of course. Harry, do you think a move to Las Vegas would actually be a positive move, or do you think it's all just noise? Well, I'm not really sure what you mean by positive in that context. Um, it's In terms of media market, it's probably not a positive one, because I think, as, as Ron rightly identifies, the media market in Oakland and in that sort of Bay Area is even split with another team is still more substantial than Las Vegas although Vegas isn't as bad as people would think. Now I know Vegas are also supposed to be getting a, an NHL team mm. uh, in, the, in the next uh, couple of years so there's a, a gap there that perhaps wasn't there before in terms of professional sports moving into this market and moving into what is, is a fairly substantial metro area. In terms of the league's image and the general perception it's one that Hertz said I mean Oakland has been messed around for quite some time now and then just losing the team at the end of all of this back and forth and being like, well, you know, the cities have to pay up. And it's amazing how they can find $750 million for a sports franchise, right, when they yeah. can't do a huge amount of other stuff, but that's that's government for you. And I've actually the decision now has gone to the governor of, uh, of Nevada. I can't think of it as off the top of my head to make the decision on whether or not to approve this, uh, this new taxation. The problem with that is that puts a time pressure on it because then... You know, you're waiting for the governor uh, to make a decision, and then it's like, well, what is the league going to do? Because if they approve this funding, then mm-hmm. there's no team for the funding, and if they don't approve it, then it puts the Raiders in a really difficult position. Real thing is, I think again, what Roden identified is this is a power play to force uh, the city of Oakland's uh, politicians into action and force them to come up with something matching to try and stop them from moving. Yeah. Um, honestly, I don't know if this would get through the owners. I think that their investment primarily is in the media market aspect and is in the revenue sharing model. So for them, they're like, well, if you're going to move to Vegas, you know, wouldn't it make more sense to move to San Antonio or one of the other places that they would mm. perhaps find find more more finance, uh, sorry, find more financial uh, support and more financial stability from? Uh, so I don't think this is going to happen. I don't think it's really going to lead to anything. I think this is a lot of posturing. But at the end of the day, you never know. They could have their bluff called by the city of Oakland. They could go to the other league owners and be like, look, we're just not going to have a team here if if we don't get to move, so it's Vegas or nothing. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out, firstly in terms of what the Nevada governor and his office decide to do, and then in terms of, I suppose, the next owners meeting to discuss these things, how they react to the proposed move. Yeah, like there's been interesting coverage about there is support from some of the owners around this move, but then there hasn't been a lot of vocal opposition so much as a lot of very noteworthy no comments coming out of a lot of them so it would be interesting if it progressed to this point where there was then funding available that then they would have to kind of essentially make that call at that point rather than just talk about it in abstract where I think they're all a little bit happier to talk about it in 
and abstract until there's something on the ground. So we'll see what comes of that. It could be uh, could be very interesting. Uh, Kansas City's Don Terry Poe, uh, well, he was initially flagged as being the heaviest uh, ever touchdown receiver at 346 pounds. And let me say, right, if that man is 346 pounds, I'm 130 pounds, right? <laughs> he, is, he is definitely at least 20 pounds heavier than that. But hey, whatever. Um, it's been held now that, uh, that it was actually sideways pass rather than a forward pass, though it counts as a rushing touchdown. So that's his second rushing touchdown. He's still the heaviest touchdown scorer of any type. Uh, which is which is fun to have. Uh, I love a fat man touchdown, but I much prefer when they have to run longer than like two yards <laughs> to get it. I I really like the way this play was drawn up. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, it was just just hilarious. It's like just sheer gravity alone means no one is stopping him at that point. Like screen to a 350 pound fucking nose tackle. Like oh, it was fun. What did you just make of it, lads? Are we gonna is this gonna cause a revolution in the game? Where we're gonna see more. More defensive linemen split out at receiver. I hope so. I want to see. I want to see Vince Wilfork running streak routes down the field. That's what <laughs> I want to see. I want to see this like two way players coming back. You know. Oh, the amazing. Um, no, it was a really, it was a really smart trick play. It's one of those things that you know when you see the team line up a, a, a defensive lineman in those positions, like we've seen obviously with JJ Watt in Houston, or the Bengals have a habit of doing it, and the Jets have done it as well, running heavy sets where they put them in either as a blocker or a or a or a ball carrier. You generally should have an idea that something's probably happening. Up. Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit unusual, unlikely to be a decoy in that situation. So no, I don't think it's going to particularly change anything. But I think I, I do agree. I do always love these these little trick plays and these uh, defensive players getting involved. And there is there is just something as you said so satisfying about watching a fat man touchdown. Oh yeah, I like this just especially whenever you've got like a real mouthy cornerback or something playing against <laughs> him. Just watching them trying to stop a man who's like hundred and forty pounds heavier than them. <laughs> great uh what did yourself fits could you see the seahawks running anything like this probably not i'm sure michael bennett might try uh, to play tight end for a little bit <laughs> and yeah i think it's always good to see these kind of touchdowns except from jj watt because you know be the twist uh but i did i did enjoy the the name for this call hungry pig right <laughs> an, an apt play call and i'm sure alex smith uh, enjoyed his uh, huddle in that case mm. and i'm sure everyone in the huddle is kind of like <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good fun. It was good fun. Uh, I must say, I, d- I did like a lot of the comments afterwards. Uh, people were saying he's uh, he's the heaviest player to ever uh, to ever catch a receiving touchdown. And the most common uh, comment I heard afterwards was, "Geez, I never realised Eddie Lacy has only got rushing touchdowns." <laughs> But uh, um, but no, it was good fun. Hopefully, you might see a bit more. Go on, Poe, you mad bastard! Uh, interesting side news: uh, the Nile Davis has now been traded to. Uh, to be the to be the backup running back there in Green Bay, which one that money might now be going towards providing funding for Poe's extension because this is his final year, so that'll be interesting. Uh, but also maybe it opens up a bit of space for him at running back. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we're going to go through a couple of the injuries as well now that happened. Uh, Roethlisberger uh, went out of the game to get himself checked out, then came back in and continued to. Then came off the field afterwards, uh, had himself checked out, and it's discovered that it's a torn meniscus, so they're expecting him to be out for one to three weeks. Uh, we all kind of expected an injury at some point because it seems to be just Ben Roethlisberger's thing. Uh, like, it obviously just kind of disappoint us a bit. One of the games we were looking forward to was going to be the New England-Pittsburgh uh, game this week, but now that's significantly less interesting. What do you think the impact of Roethlisberger is going to be out? Uh, it's going to be, Harry? Yeah, it's obviously significant. I mean, his ability to play, his ability to extend plays, take hits, well, obviously this is what leads to that, but also his ability to, you know, his chemistry with the receivers is, is remarkable. And even though he was struggling, obviously, um, 
both before the injury and then even more so after the injury, it's hard to have a lot of faith in the backups in Pittsburgh uh, to be able to recreate anything close to the level of play. I think we're going to see a lot more from Bell and also a lot more now from D'Angelo Williams going forward as they look to establish mm. a heavier type of run game. But we've seen before Pittsburgh can win games with backups, but they can't reach anything near the ceiling they can with Roethlisberger and they become an... Ex- what's already a team that has wobbles like it did this week becomes an extremely inconsistent team. Uh, like, Fitz, do you think this is going to have a huge knock-on? Like, their next couple of games are... They've got a bye week in the middle, so that's not too bad. And the Ravens are always one that'll play them hard. But, like, they should have them back maybe in time for the Cowboys game. What what, what do you reckon? Is this going to have a big impact on them at the end of the season? Well, I, I, I definitely think it will. Like, I think, obviously, Pittsburgh, if they stayed healthy for the season and I avoided some suspension, would be competing up with New England to be getting the top seed in the AFC. Like, I think against New England, it was always going to be tough regardless. And, like, that was pretty much a coin flip anyway. I think right now you'd probably have to give New England a big advantage. But that game against Baltimore is absolutely pivotal. Like, if he's out for that Ravens game, that could be an incredibly pivotal moment in the season for Pittsburgh. If they only miss him for New England, I think they'll be okay and they'll, they'll probably still win the AFC North. But if he's out for the Ravens game and they lose that one as well, then the AFC North becomes a lot more interesting, a lot more open, and could become very easily a three-horse race. Yeah, no, of Cleveland. course. Cleveland are doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Miami, Rashad Jones has torn his rotator cuff. He's probably gone for the season. This season is essentially a gone season for this team anyway, as are all their seasons, uh, <laughs> because they are garbage. Um, do do we have any interesting thoughts on this? Is it just a bad team losing like one of their decent-ish players? Yeah, like no major impact because I don't think we expect much of them. Baltimore Suggs has now apparently torn his bicep. It's not confirmed yet, but that could be quite a big one given he's had a number of other knocks. Uh, is this going to impact, especially Fitz, as you mentioned, that Baltimore game? Uh, what do you think the impact of Suggs going, being out for them would be? Well, he, he's quite old and he was out last year, but I think it's, he's still a fundamental part of that defensive front. So I think it's a major loss for Baltimore. And in what could be a very tight season in the AFC North, as I mentioned previously, like this could be a major major difference maker. They don't really have that much more talent on defence they can afford to lose at this point. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, Indianapolis have lost Dwayne Allen. Well, I say lost, he's got an ankle sprain, so he's week to week. Uh, is this a high-impact issue for Indianapolis? Like, Allen looked a bit better than he did last season, and they does take away their ability to run the two tight end set as well as they did with Allen and Doyle. But again, much like you said with Miami, this is a bad team losing a decent-ish player. Mm. I wouldn't expect a huge impact from this. Green Bay, Starks is now torn his meniscus. He's out for four weeks. Uh, there's an injury already to Eddie Lacy, so he's 50-50 at the moment. This means also, hence the, hence the signing of Niall Davis from the Chiefs, got a bit of a knock-on because it cuts their, their ability to rotate back, their ability to play the game that they want because he's quite a different runner from what you'd get with Lacy or what you're getting with Niall Davis. You're also not going to expect Niall Davis to be up to speed in time, so it's going to impact them a bit. But Starks was not getting a huge amount of touches. Uh, I don't think this is going to have a huge impact, especially that he's only gone for four weeks and they've now got a new backup in place. And finally, San Francisco, Carlos Hyde's injured his shoulder. Details are unknown as to how serious this is. He's been a fairly bright spark on what's been not a mad, exciting team. Fitz, what's your thoughts on this one? It's similar to Green Bay in the sense that this is, this is a team that right now would probably prefer to run the ball to take some pressure off their, their quarterback, albeit from different perspectives. Uh, I think it's a major loss for San Francisco for a team that really can't afford it. It really it really just 
hammers in what if he's out for any considerable period of time, it's going to be an even more abject season in San Francisco. Oh my! Uh, we had a big chat about this over the weekend. We thought it'd be an interesting one to to, to, to talk to you guys about. Obviously, if you have any ideas on this, uh, fire us in comments, questions. We'll, we'll go through some of them uh, and we'll see if they're interesting. We might come back to it later on. But but yeah, we got talking about the Dallas Cowboys, the success that they're having at the moment with their rookie quarterback and also their exceptional rookie running back. We, we briefly mentioned this in the preseason about if Dak Prescott plays really, really well here, what do you do with Tony Romo? Do you put him back in? And I was surprised to see we had such divergent views on this. They've currently won five of their last six games, uh, so they're setting at five and one. And they've not just won them, they've won them quite comprehensively looking good. Their defences look better. Now, that's obviously separate to the performance of the quarterback, but I think it does help whenever you feel... You've got a bit of leadership being shown from there and someone you can trust there. I am of the opinion that if a player's on a hot streak like Dak is, that you don't pull him just because Tony Romo's back. And I understand that Tony Romo is an excellent quarterback when he's healthy. Uh, he has shown himself to be phenomenal, even in games that they've lost. A phenomenal game two years ago against the Broncos, where I think there was nearly a 1,000 yards of just passing offense between him and Peyton Manning. But... This is where we got into it, because I think Harry is of a very different opinion on this. He believes that in this scenario, you should be bringing back in Tony Romo. Uh, and then Fitz is sat somewhere in the middle between this. So I suppose I'll, I'll throw it over to you, Harry, on this first. No disrespect to Dak Prescott. He has looked fantastic. He's looked about as good as you can expect a rookie to be. He's been very, very solid and very, very capable. The reason here is that I genuinely think that Tony Romo is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Legitimately, Tony Romo is possibly a top five quarterback. And this is a guy, I think he's finally getting recognition for this after a guy who was just known for his high-profile blunders. People have really, in the last couple of seasons, started to wake up to how good his game actually can be. And if you look at how Dallas performed when he was healthy, and how he's done while playing healthy for Dallas over the last few seasons, it's been like legitimately really, really good. Now, he hasn't a full season in a while, right? But if you can, so, and he was very short on time last season. He played four games. The season before that, his his rating, he had a rating of I think 113, uh, which is is phenomenal. Uh, his rating has been consistently above 90 for pretty much all of his career, which again is solidity. This is a guy who has been playing at a very high level for a very long time. He doesn't turn the ball over as much as people think he does. He's extremely good at run- and comfortable in running that offense. He's also got really really good connection. With, say, like Des Bryant, who obviously Des has been injured himself this season, but you saw when he was playing with Prescott, that was a big weapon that wasn't quite clicking there. It was a big thing that wasn't quite working. When you bring a guy like Romo back, who has that leadership, who has that experience, who has those understandings and those sort of subtle connections with the players around him, it adds an extra dimension to what's already looking like a pretty good offense. And when you have a guy who is able to do that, who is able to get a little more from his veteran receivers, who is able to find better connections with guys in the passing game, that then means, right, we're looking at our run game that can get even better because you've got a guy who's now even more of a threat because you've got a guy who can now connect really well with his number one, a guy who always seems to know where Jason Witten is on third and medium, which is wide open over the middle. These are things that we've seen Prescott do some stuff really, really well, but I think, and we saw it last week, we saw him struggle in patches quite a bit. Missed some throws that he could have met, should have made, cracks that are to be expected from any rookie no matter how good they are but I think we saw them a bit and I think if you take a guy like Tony Romo who has more experience who has more comfort in this offense who has more comfort with those players those cracks stop existing in the same way so while I think that Prescott has done really well and has very clearly established that he is the future in Dallas at quarterback 
at this point, while Romo can still play at this level, and obviously if Romo comes back and proves he can't play at the level, that's a completely different story, obviously. But if Romo comes back and keeps playing at the level he was playing at two seasons ago, pre-injury, that's a guy who can take this team that is doing well and make it better and isn't going to cause a huge amount of disruption because these players know Tony Romo, these players have played with Tony Romo, and these players are comfortable with Tony Romo. Fair enough. Fitz, you think somewhere slightly more along the middle, almost almost the inverse of the if Tony's not playing well, pull him. You're thinking ride the ride the hot hand, is it? Yeah, so from my perspective, I don't think it's that important who the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys is because this is Ezekiel Elliott's team. Elliott's team. Like, right now, they're winning by running the ball so effectively behind that offensive line that it wouldn't really matter who they put in. Uh, they could put the Sanchez back in charge and they'd still be winning games. They might drop one more game, but they'd probably still be within one win of where they are right now. Ezekiel Elliott is out of, out of going out of his mind right now and absolutely dominating teams. And when you have that kind of open coverage on, on the perimeter, it's pretty easy for any like adequate quarterback to basically make scores and do well. So from my perspective, like... Each of these players are effectively interchangeable. I don't think it will make that big of a difference in terms of the win-losses at the end of the season on who's doing it. From the kind of perspective of coaching this in and trying to handle the situation, like I think Tony Romo, there's a lot of respect for him in the locker room. There's a lot of respect for him in the owner's room. There's a lot of respect around that team for him. So I think it, beho- it behooves them that if Dak Prescott struggles during this season, it's likely that he'll go through a two, three-game stretch in which he does struggle, that Tony Romo is given an opportunity to take that team to to the playoffs and have like an opportunity to try and reach the Super Bowl and win perhaps the Super Bowl. Like That team right now, while I wouldn't consider it a favour for the Super Bowl, is certainly good enough to have a shot in the NFC of, of being a contender. And I think like there's going to be a point where like, Dak Prescott is going to be struggling and they'll have a choice to make. And in my opinion, if that does happen, which I think will happen, then that's when they should bring Tony Romo in. Because that, like, at that point, I think like Tony Romo probably still is a better quarterback uh, than Dak Prescott and will probably be able to better take better advantage of the Ezekiel Elliott thing. But if Dak Prescott does literally like play out of his mind continually, like only has one or two losses for the season, I don't think there's any way you can pull him. But you know, I don't think that's going to happen. So yeah, I'm kind of in between. I, I'm like... I don't really think it's as important as you guys are making it out to be, and uh, I think it, it's more a case of like if you have the opportunity to bring Tony Romo in without basically undoing a winning formula, then you should. Yeah, like that. This is this is my issue with it. It's a it's not just the kind of transition to Tony Romo knows these guys and they can play. I do think that they have to they they're going to be running slightly different extents of the playbook with these two players. They're going to be asking them to do slightly different things. As it stands, Dak Prescott is gluing with all his receivers, even missing their number one wide receiver at the moment. As you said, Elliott is playing insanely well. Prescott's had seven passing touchdowns and three rushing touchdowns. He's averaging over like 250 yards a game. He's he's playing exceptionally well. He's not making mistakes. And I'm with you on that, that it's more like it's the fact the team around him is playing up. They've got a great O-line. They've got an excellent running back. But it is a scenario of like, this is this is a formula that is working, and that formula will, even if they try and play the exact same game plan, change somewhat because Tony Romo will have different abilities in the scramble game. He'll have different preferences in his read progressions. Tony Romo has much more of a tendency to hoof it up to Des Bryant for a contested catch, which isn't something that they necessarily need to be doing in this offense, given how the run game works and given how they're able to ru- to use the kind of shorter underneath threats, which I think is something that it 
works well for young, quicker quarterbacks who don't have multiple back surgeries, collarbone breakages underneath their belt. I'm with you, Fitz, on this idea that if he has a rough patch, maybe you let Romo back in. But even at that point, I'm not sure what scenario we're going like in what spot we're going to see that and it wouldn't be a spot where Romo would also struggle like I'm, I'm looking at the schedule right now so just week 10 to week 13 Steelers Ravens racists Vikings I could easily see them dropping two two or two one and three in that stretch and that, especially that Vikings game that's that's the one I'm them. looking at the Vikings yeah. game is the most likely one like because Okay, so Eagles will be an exciting game. Browns is going to be a cakewalk. Yeah, for the Browns. <laughs> <laughs> Steelers will be interesting. Um, like I said, because that'll probably be just at the tail end of coming back from injury uh, Roethlisberger. They've already beaten the Mazungus once. I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see. But it it's just that thing of if you've got a winning formula and your team is playing this well, even if it could be a potential upgrade, I don't think you disrupt the boat at all. When it comes down to it, this is a team with playoff aspirations. This is a team that's now in a real good spot to make the playoffs. And when you talk about upsetting the boat, right, you want... It's not about, you know, the regular season or can we, who, do, who will play the best against Cleveland or will we be good enough to beat Cleveland or Philadelphia or, or, or Washington or whoever. The question is, is what formula gives us the best chance of winning once we get to the playoffs because this team is good enough to go to the playoffs. And at that point, that's where the crunch is going to come in. That's where you want a guy like Tony Romo who has the experience who has all that stuff I talked about before. And I think the earlier you can get that going and that game plan bedded in, because, you know, you guys are right about the playbook. There are going to be things that are going to be done differently. I don't think it's going to be anything they haven't done before, so I don't think it's going to be hugely difficult for most of the players. But there will be differences. And I think you want as much time as possible working that offense, making that offense work as well as it can, rather than, you know, giving yourself until after the Vikings game where you've got, what, four or five games before the playoffs start. You give yourself a head start on that because this is ultimately the combination that gives your team the best chance of going to a Super Bowl. And that's what you have to look at if you're Dallas because that's that's where their ambitions have to lie this season. So would you yeah. have put Bledsoe back in? Would I have put Bledsoe back in? When Brady took over? <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't have. But that's a, different, that's a different scenario. Bledsoe and Romo aren't the same player. They weren't in the same position at the time. They were in terms. He was, of, he was playing excellently. He had led successful two successful seasons for the team. He got injured. Young starting quarterback came in, won a load of games, and they decided to stay with the hot hand. But right, but okay. But Bledsoe wasn't a top five quarterback in the league at the time. Um, in terms of that, Bledsoe was also not necessarily. I, I like. I think Dallas. I think are much more reliant on Roman. Like when Tom Brady came in, this was a team that wasn't necessarily... Like, Bledsoe wasn't a huge aspect of that team in the same way that Romo is in terms of the locker room, in terms of the leadership, in terms of the entire way they play the game. What I'd look at it as being more analogous to, in a way, is if you look at, like, would, would you have brought back Peyton Manning would be the question I'd ask back in Denver. Because even though, like, Osweiler wasn't playing well, Manning was unquestionably worse, but they were like, what gives this team the best chance of actually succeeding holistically? And at that point, that's where you go for the veteran guy, the guy who knows the system and gives you the best chance of getting the team through the playoffs. Personally, if I was Dak Prescott, I would be offended at being compared to Brock Osweiler. Yeah, if, I, <laughs> like, well, if, I, if I was Tony Romo, I'd be offended at being compared to last year's Peyton Manning. But, you know, they won yeah, the Super Bowl, true. so there you go. <laughs> oh, they my. take the ring. And they, but they, they both had serious back issues. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, like, I think, I think to be honest, it's something we'll see as, as time progresses. I think there are good arguments on all sides of it. I just thought it was an interesting thing to see that we all had such different opinions on. Like I said to the listeners out there, like, drop us in comments what you think about this as well. Like, we're always interested to see what your opinions are. Uh, and uh, yeah, sure, look, that'll do us for the news and stuff this week. And we're going to move on to looking at some of the games from last week. 
Okay, so the first game we're going to look at in the Ring of Honor is Atlanta at Seattle, 24-26. This is one that uh, Fitz picked out last week as his game of the week. Uh, it's kind of what we expected from both teams. Both showed really well here. Both were okay on offense and defense. Uh, 380 yards of offense for the Falcons, 340 for Seattle. Big difference on the defense. Falcons only managed one sack and five quarterback hits, whereas Seattle got four sacks and 13 quarterback hits. They were knocking the shite out of Matt Ryan for most of that game. I remember we were watching in Harry's house and we were just going, oh God, is he going to survive? There was a couple of issues in this game. Like I'm sure you guys will discuss them. Like, there's a large number of no calls in both directions for, for PI and OPI. There was also a bizarre scenario where the defense for Seattle essentially shut down this top-tier offense for all but one quarter. In the third quarter, Matt Ryan went for three touchdowns, 220 yards. Like, that's crazy. I believe it was after the first one of those touchdowns, Richard Sherman essentially had a meltdown and started screaming at his teammates on the sidelines, including ones which weren't playing, which I thought was a nice touch. Um, But yeah, like, both teams purported themselves well here. Even in a loss, I think I'm still feeling good about Atlanta, having seen them up against a stronger defense. And against as strong of an offense, I'm definitely feeling a lot better about Seattle's defense. So, Harry, the Falcons were shut down for three quarters, but were still in it at the very end. Like, was this just a good team having a bad game? Or was this us seeing that that there are actual causes for concern long-term for this offense? Yeah, it's an interesting one to look at, because... You say, oh, it's a good team having a bad game, but I don't think it really is as much as a good team coming against another really good team and having like a defense that just seems sort of suddenly woken up this season in Seattle after not quite getting there for the for the first while. We did see them light it up in the third quarter. They made the adjustments they needed to, which was a really, really good sign again. I've praised them on this for offense pretty much every week on the podcast of their ability to uh, play situational football and adapt and find what's working. But that sort of went back down again because the Seattle were able to make adjustments as the game went on and sort of take the options away from, from what Atlanta were doing. Um, so I don't think you know there's anything that's new, particularly we've seen from Atlanta in this game. Like, we know that they're very good at doing things like that. We know that they can. Matt Ryan is playing in a way that he can utilise whatever weapons he has rather than being entirely dependent on it. They did struggle in the run game, but again, a lot of that credit has to go to Seattle um, just playing in a way to take away uh, short passing to the running backs game and take away the basically take away the rushing attack. So, so credit to them there. Uh, I think a lot of the issues with Seattle happen defensively. And this is where Atlantic exploiting. Seattle tend to play quite his own defense, but it seemed at times that Sherman was tracking Jones, and that created space that Atlanta were able mm. to exploit, but then Seattle were able to sort of change what they were doing defensively once they calmed Sherman down and everything, and go back to being able to, to lock this down. So I think what we saw from Atlanta is that, yeah, this is a really explosive offense, but... There are ways to beat it. You can beat them when you have an elite defense that plays as well as it can. Obviously, it was a very, very physical game, and there are some calls that Dan Quinn was very unhappy with, but you know that's his team. That's how he coached <laughs> them, right? Like These are his players at the end of the day in Seattle. I wouldn't take anything negative from this from Atlanta. Sometimes you just come up against a team who are playing better than you. It's a very tough place to play in. It's a very tough defense to play against. A loss, but one that I think they can take comfort from of being like, okay, we lost to an elite defense. What do we do next time better? We can do this. No, exactly. And I think I think you're spot on there because there is, there is a discussion to be had as well about the idea that they were getting shut down and then they made adjustments at halftime and they came out and they got success for a while. And that kind of brings me to what I was going to ask Fitz about. So, like, emotions ran high, but you got the win. Like, it was a mixed bag from the defense because it was three quarters of excellence and one quarter of trying to catch up. Like, 
is this going to be the nature of the Seattle Seahawks defense or was it just a matter of second half adjustments surprising them but them them reacting going into the fourth quarter? I think there's definitely reason to be somewhat worried but there are a lot of unique circumstances in this case. So firstly you're dealing with uh, Julio Jones so obviously that's a player who forces you to change around him so from the perspective of the Seattle defense they had to go to some man concepts, or they went to some man concepts, particularly with Sherman, to try and bottle him up. I think that was just something which created confusion, because obviously usually it's a zone defense. I think, and it's, it's important to note, therefore, that like Dan Quinn, he is a former Seattle uh, defensive coordinator. He is the one who won a Super Bowl there in Seattle. So if anyone's going to have the in-depth knowledge to be able to exploit those matchups, it's going to be someone like Dan Quinn. I think it also reflects the fact that the Seattle defense is still evolving somewhat under the new defensive coordinator, Chris Richard, for the last two years. In this game, he introduced a lot of blitzing in the first half, something which we didn't really see from the Seattle defense in the Super Bowl years or in the years around the Super Bowl, and which has now become much more common in their repertoire. And also we've seen this you know, increased usage of Sherman in a man-to-man role, trying to shut down elite receivers like Antonio Brown last year, like Julio Jones here. I think Dan Quinn had obviously done his homework and made the adjustments to kind of take advantage of that. And it, I think it did reflect badly on Richard Sherman. And I think one other thing to like really keep an eye on is that Cam Chancellor wasn't out there. He's generally considered to be kind of the general of that legion of boom. Mm-hmm. He's the one who moves pieces about and makes sure that everyone is, is, is getting their assignments done correctly. I think Kelsey McRae, his, his backup, is a very good player, brought over from KC. He's shown himself to be very effective both as a safety and on special teams, but he doesn't have that respect and that ability to basically move that defense around. And that's obviously something we saw early on last season when Cam Chancellor was holding out, and even something which spread into the rest of the season because the holdout basically meant his preparation wasn't where it would have been at otherwise. So I think for Seattle, there was a lot of interesting kind of uh, things that were at play here that probably aren't replicable elsewhere. I think there are other teams have shown the general way to beat the Seahawks isn't by throwing to Julio Jones or your main receiver. It's Dink and Duck and stuff like that. And I think Seattle has started to adjust to take that out. But maybe that's going to start opening it up for the return of more plays over the top against players like Sherman and Deshaun Shedd. Uh, just to briefly mention the offense, they were as inconsistent as ever. They got the point, like they did really well when they needed to. Uh, but sometimes would just go three and out for no good reason. Uh, but it is good to see that Christian Michael continues to rack up those yards with the uh, bring its career back up to, to, to scratch. Yeah, no, 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 it was good. Now, I must say, good performances from both teams, and definitely two teams that are going to be up there in January, I'd say, anyway. Uh, into the neutral zone now. This is a Thursday night game. Broncos at San Diego, 13-21. to I was up watching this because James Hope came down from Belfast at 11 o'clock at night and asked, did I want to go for a pint? So, of course, we stayed out and watched this. Chargers in sexy, sexy, sexy-looking uniforms. Uniforms. I loved the colour rush uniforms of the Chargers. Um, pull off and ups- pulled off the absolute upset of the week here. Uh, it was not a good offensive game. Like there was a total of 400 yards passing and like 170, 180 yards rushing. Uh, Gordon looked good on the stat line of 94 yards uh, over 27 carries, but he had the long of 48. So once you take out his one long run, he's down to 1.7 yards per carry, which is not good. Henry looked good. Uh, Henry, the tight end, looked quite good as well. Uh, Brown had a monster day on defense. This was a day for the defensive players. Brown had, I think, 13 or 14 solo tackles, tackle for a loss and a sack. Bosa, the rookie, is looking great as well. Really looking like the type of player they needed for that team to kind of solidify the line. Um, 
That said, it's also going to blow open the, the, the AFC West quite a bit with the Broncos dropping another game, which we'll come to in a minute, uh, and the, the Chargers looking like they can win in spots where maybe they shouldn't. So, Fitz, I'm going to come to you first on this. Um, great win for the Chargers. Division's up in the air again. Is this a potential resurgence for the Chargers, or is it just the Thursday night home team advantage? Well, like it's a bit unfair to say the Chargers uh, haven't been competitive. They've been in nearly every game that they've been in and have been subject to some of the worst luck, uh, some self-inflicted, some not, that, 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 that people have seen in, in many a year, uh, whether it's you know phantom fumbles or like fluffing the, the, the snap on a kick. It's been pretty pretty dire, and I think that was reflected in McCoy's behaviour towards the end of this game where he was effectively seen to be seemed to believe that things could only go wrong uh, when Denver looked like they might be able to pull this back out. But, despite all of the injuries that this team has suffered, it still looks like a really great team and a really exciting team and a team which has lots of hope for the future, not just for now, but for the future. Uh, Philip Rivers played really well in the first half and like did a clinic on how to defeat this Denver defense, which is to pick on their linebackers on the perimeter and basically force them to go into coverage. I think he played that game excellently in the first half, and I think like Melvin Gordon, you know, he was he was okay. Hunter Henry has emerged as a legitimate heir to Antonio Gates. That has to be a great feeling for the people in San Diego. Well, assuming they get to keep their team, um, <laughs> see that there's there's going to be someone who can take up that role because you know it's obviously very hard to have those transitions from having these all all pro tight ends and tried to replace them because there's so few elite tight ends in the league as a whole and like despite the fact that they lost Keenan Allen the combination of Willi- like Tyrell Williams Travis Benjamin and uh, Dontrell Inman have at various points managed to fill in and be an adequate set of weapons for Phil Rivers to use I think the biggest problem though is is the coaching like the coaching it's very obvious that this is a coaching staff which really there's so many question marks about how they approach the game. Like when McCoy was on on his knees, effectively praying that that the Broncos could do it. Like that isn't the type of coaching which inspires confidence, especially because after having such a good first half, after putting the like the game in the hands of Philip Rivers and letting him do his thing, in the second half they turtled it. They tried to just shut up shop, like run the ball, and then hope that they could hold out the Denver Broncos for almost two quarters. And that's just not the way that you want to be playing, especially as a team which in this game had nothing to lose. This is a team playing for it, like playing for a season. They should be going out there. They should be giving Philip Rivers the power and the ability to change the game because we know we can. There's no way they should have let this game be so close in the first place. Denver never deserved to be in this game. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, one big plus. This is the first time they've held a two-score lead in the fourth quarter and managed to uh, to win a game uh, this season. So that's a, that, that's a big plus for them. Uh, Harry, on Denver... So there's worries for Denver at the quarterback position because even getting back Simeon, he didn't look up to speed. Uh, that's two losses in a row. Is it time to start worrying about this team or is it just circumstance, one of the top, like the top offense coming into them last week and then being away for a Thursday night game? It's easy to make excuses and sometimes excuses are right and sometimes we don't really know until these things shake out over a much longer period. But I think if you're Denver, you've got to look at this game in particular and be like, there are things we need to be doing way, way better that just weren't done in this game. I understand Ron's argument that Philip Rivers was efficient, but Philip Rivers had a very, very easy time in that game. Denver's defense didn't look as good as it has done in, in previous times, and it didn't give San Diego a huge amount to do to win the game. Like, San Diego did, obviously, as he said, do their best to sort of throw it away at the end, but never really looked 
convincing offensively against Denver. The problem was that Denver's own offense was awful. Um, Trevor Simeon attempted 50 passes. He completed 30 of them for 230 yards. That's less than five yards an attempt. That's bad. But, like, the, below the Gabbard zone. That is, like, we're getting into the Gabbard zone. <laughs> it's not quite there, but we're getting, we're getting into that kind of period. They didn't have a receiver over 40 yards. Uh, C.J. Anderson averaged 3.7 yards a carry. It was just ugly from Denver on offense. And I think that perhaps this whole Simeon thing, like the kid clearly has some ability, but you've got to wonder if now there's some tape on him, teams are starting to figure him out a bit more, they know what he's about and they know how to take that away. Because San Diego doesn't have exactly have a monstrous defense. If, I, if you're Denver, you've got to look and be like, okay, is what we're doing too predictable on offense? Are teams able to just see what we're doing and lock it down? Do we have a plan B? Do we have a plan C? Can we do make something different? Can this Devontae Booker thing work out or is that just a guy playing against you know, getting his carries at a period in the game where San Diego didn't particularly care. Can we get CJ Anderson in space again? Can we get the sort of the, the zone and the power running going again? Can we get Simeon comfortable? And the question, these are the questions that need to be answered. And these are what we're going to find out over the next week or two as to whether or not Denver has anything left in the tank or if they are just going to be a one-trick team that now their offense has been figured out just relies on its defense to win games and sometimes that isn't going to be enough. I think we saw it here. I think Denver's defense looked okay, didn't play up to the level we expect from them, which, again, is attributable Thursday night away from home, definitely to an extent. Mm. But you're like, what happens when the defense is merely good instead of great? What happens when you know your your special teams aren't giving the other team a huge amount to do? What happens when the other team's special teams uh, are making is making life very, very difficult for you, yeah. as happened in this game? Can the offense win games? And early in the season, yes. Now that's the question because have they been figured out? So it'll be really interesting to see how Kubiak and the coaching staff react to this uh, to this defeat. No, of course. Now there is also the added fact, as we're saying, there's plenty of excuses going on. They also did have their their coach missing due to his injury as well. So uh, so we'll see whether they turn it around or not. Um, I do think it's cause for concern, if not panic, but maybe time to reflect on it a little bit more. Uh, into the into the dumpster fires now to uh, the, the, the Monday night game, New York Jets at Arizona. 3-28 in a fucking stinker. Uh, Arizona make a big statement here. Their offensive line neutralised what the Jets' defensive line just meant to be the strength on that team. Ryan Fitzpatrick was benched uh, in between the third and fourth quarter. He was, uh, interesting fact, Ryan Fitzpatrick's stats this season in the second half of games are zero touchdowns and ten interceptions. So maybe just always bench him for the second half. <laughs> uh it might be better. They only managed to get 33-yard rushing. Like, this was this was a piss-poor performance for a team that's on a massive downslope. Um, I, I did like that their total rushing yards was less than the single longest run of Derek Johnson or uh, David Johnson. Uh, Johnson had a great day, 111 yards and three touchdowns just uh, just on the ground. And he also had a, another, I think, about 50 yards receiving. Uh, so it's great. So Ronan, I'll come to you first on this one. Um, in terms of Arizona, is this a sea change, like time to reconsider them as, as a team that's better than what we've seen so far? Or is this just a flat track bully beaten up on a bag of shit team? I think the answer is, is we don't know right now. Like this is a team which has definitely seems to have regressed from what we saw last year. What we saw last year was a NFC powerhouse on both offense and defense, and was considered legitimately and rightfully a favorite for the NFC. Now in the end, they ended up getting beat out by the eventual NFC champion of the Carolina Panthers. But right now, they don't look like that team. They look like a far more limited team. And I think all of that starts with. Who is Carson Palmer right now? Like, Carson Palmer had an okay game in this in, in, in this game, but he still looks off from where we thought he would be 
based on last season. He still looks like that quarterback who looked like he was scared in the headlights for the latter, like for the last stretch of last season in both the last few games and the playoffs. And if he's not playing at an elite level, like this team can still do a lot. They have David Johnson who is playing out of his mind, and him, him, Le- Le'Veon Bell, and Ezekiel Elliott are an absolutely delightful set of like young uh, running backs playing right now. But you can't just rely on David Johnson alone. Uh, you, you can try, and you can win a fair few games, but you probably shouldn't. But I think when you look at Carson Palmer, you're still looking at a player who doesn't seem like there's something wrong, there's something off there. And if you want to like have a, if you think you're a legitimate Super Bowl contender, that really has to worry you. I think the other thing is that like like the defense is looking pretty good, but isn't looking quite as fearsome as perhaps it did last year. I think it's still doing enough to get stuff done. But like you can't forget that the Cardinals finished one and three, and that they've managed to only get back to three and three by beating the San Francisco 49ers, who are trashed here, and the Jets, who for all intents and purposes look trashed here as well. The big like the big obviously test comes next week at Seattle, as we'll talk about in the game picks. But right now, like this card like this Cardinals team could go either way. I think it's going to be fascinating to see which way they go, but I think I think all the questions begin and start with Carson Palmer. I think Bruce Arians continues to be a good coach. I think this is still a good team on both sides of the ball, but Carson Palmer, who is he? I think that's what we need to ask. No, of course. Harry, Chino's not getting the start. They're not benching. Uh, we've had the head coach come out and say he's not going to be benching Fitzpatrick on a permanent basis yet. Anyway, their strengths are starting to look weak because this was not a good O-line uh, for the for the start of the season here, but they, they completely neutralised the, 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 the D-line in this game. If you're involved in the Jets organisation, how do you fix and progress with this team? Because the next couple of games are, so the Ravens will probably play them tough. They've got the Browns, the Dolphins, the 49ers, and then they've got a bye week. So it's not the toughest row you've got up in front of you. If you're going to make changes, you make them now, surely. Yeah, I think it's the Rams, not the 49ers, so it's a little bit tougher, oh, sorry, but not, not, Rams, a huge, yeah. uh, not a huge amount of difference. Yeah, obviously, if I was in the Jets organization, I'd set the stadium on fire and leave because I'm a Patriots fan. But um, mm. if I were to be serious about this, it's difficult because when your quarterback is playing badly, you bench him, and then you bring in Geno Smith, who immediately throws an interception. It's not like they have a huge amount of options here. You're not, oh, you have Bryce Petty and Christian Hackenberg. They're fantastic. So the Jets' offense is probably going to be a little bit messy going forward. Now, Ryan Fitzpatrick could just hit one of those Ryan Fitzpatrick streaks where he plays absolutely out of his mind, drags team to playoff contention before messing it up at the end like he oh, usually yeah, does. Yeah. But you, see, you never know. He's not, he's not reliable. He's not the long-term answer. I think nobody thinks he's the long-term answer. The problem is the Jets don't right now seem to have a long-term answer offensively. What's much more concerning is that this team has sort of been like, right, the defense will hold us over while we sort out what's going on with the offense. And that hasn't necessarily happened. In this game, I think we saw a lot of it. Now, part of it you can perhaps attribute to the fact that if anybody knows what Todd Ball's defensive scheme is going to be, it's Bruce Arians. From their time together yeah. in Arizona, you would expect Arians to have a pretty good handle on what looks Bowles is going to give him. On the other hand, if you look at the game, the, the missed tackles, the broken tackles, the inability to get pressure, like it was a bad effort from a player stance as well as for any coaching figuring out that was happening. Like, the players just did not look up to speed. It was really strange. Cause this is this has still been consistently a relatively good defensive front for the team this season. Just completely fell to pieces against the weak O-line that's missing several players. One of those things that you just look at that and you're like, I don't quite know how to reconcile that. And if I'm the uh, D-line and linebackers coach in New York, I'm not sure how to reconcile that other than perhaps teaching you know better tackling technique and better pass rushing moves. Mm. Because this team massively underperformed where it was. 
You've also got to look then. The, the other thing is, is, is the age of this team is now a concern. This is a team that's kind of transitioning and has been in transition for quite a while, to be honest with you. Um, if you look at like guys like like Fitzpatrick, obviously, and you've got Brandon Marshall, uh, Matt Forte, guys who are you know have been around for a very long time, and it's like again, as I look through the offense of this team, you're like, right, who's coming up? Who's going to step up? Who are the young guys making plays? There's some guys like Quincy Nunwa who look okay, but there's nobody here who I can see being a difference maker. So at that point, when you talk about New York making changes. I'm like, I'm not sure who within the organization can change it. That was probably their best defensive personnel on the field, and they look terrible. This is probably their best offensive personnel on the field, mm. and they look terrible. But they are missing so, Decker now. He's they are missing arm. Decker, yeah, they are missing Decker. But um, even then, like, like even when Decker was playing earlier in the season, it wasn't making a huge amount of mm. difference. Now, to be fair, this team has looked decent at home this, so far this season, and now that's decent, not good, but decent, and dreadful on the road. Yeah. So... I don't know if there's something psychological. I don't know if there's how this is working for the space. I don't know is the answer to your question. It's just one of those baffling things where it's like this should be working, but it isn't. Like I, I don't know. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't great, and it does. It does cause a lot of questions, and I think might possibly then feed into uh, into some of our questions from the listeners. So uh, let's move on to there. So we again are just going to take one question in particular because we thought it was a particularly interesting one this week. This one comes in from William or Will. Said, which head coach is the first one who's going to get shit canned? It's a fair question. There's a good couple of coaches out there who are hanging on by shoestrings. A few who I think have probably managed to get wins that will allow them to hang on for a while longer. Like we, we were wondering if a certain team lost a certain game in a certain non uh, non American city, whether they would not have a seat on the plane back home. But uh, they managed to win it, even though they tried to piss it away at the end. So I suppose I'll come to you first on this, Fitz. Um, which head coach do you think is going to be the first one to be gone? I'm going to go straight for the hot take and say I think the first coach to get canned this season will actually be Chip Kelly. I think it's for two reasons. Firstly, San Francisco are like hot, steaming garbage right now. Absolutely stinking up the place. And I think are going to be on the end of a lot of very one-sided beatdowns that are going to make it very, very difficult for that team to retain uh, that to retain their coach, basically. Someone will have to get shit-canned for that dumpster fire. I think like the fact that he's a first-season coach is probably why you might consider that less likely. But I think things are going to get so bad that's going to happen. Because the second reason is that organization continues to be an absolute dumpster fire as well. Trent Balke is like one of the worst GMs in the, in the league. Uh, Jed York hasn't really shown himself to be in any way a stable owner for that team. So I think overall, if there's a team to make a rash, stupid decision and decide to get rid of their head coach in the middle of the season, even though it probably won't fix anything, it's probably the 49ers. Fair enough, fair enough. What about yourself? Uh, my answer is going to be a little more boring. Uh, I'm going to go with Chuck Pagano um, yeah. because I don't think you're allowed to continue as a head coach once you've got your quarterback murdered by refusing to put him behind an O-line. But like, look, the Colts are bad. They should not be bad. They had a little window there a while ago and they've just squandered it over the last few years under Pagano. And that's what I think makes it worse for a guy like him than Chip Kelly or Todd Balls who are taking over, you know, existing dumpster fires or even even a guy like Gus Bradley or whoever, you know, mm. who took on teams that were bad and continue to be bad and lack talent. Pagano actually found himself very briefly in a, in a good situation in Indianapolis where this was a playoff caliber team and he 
rode that into the ground. You want to talk about bad GMs. Ryan Grigson as well will have to bear some of the blame for that. But at the end of the day, it does come down to the head coach. There's only so much blame you can put on your lunatic owner and idiot GM, mm. as is the case in Indianapolis. And at the end of the day, Pagano's got to be the one who's answerable. He's probably had more rope than he should already. He is wasting the career of... Now, whatever you think about Andrew Luck, you can't deny he is an extremely talented quarterback who should be playing better than this, who should not be getting hit the way he is and taking the abuse he's taking because this team has been unable to either assemble or coach an offensive line into existence. The pass rush has now slowed down to the point where it's totally ineffective. The team cannot stop the run. And at that point, you're like, this isn't just a personnel thing. This is a team that is bad at playing football because it is badly coached, because it doesn't know how to take advantage of what talent it has remaining on the roster. And Pagano's got to be answerable for that. And to be honest, he's surviving at the moment because the division is so, so weak that it's masking just how terrible the Colts are, I don't think that you can keep making that excuse for him anymore. I don't think he can hide behind that anymore. At the end of the day, this team is underperforming. It has allowed itself to rot from where it could be. And if he doesn't turn things around very quickly this season, if Indianapolis don't make the playoffs, if Indianapolis don't go above 500, both of which are looking unlikely, if the team is well off that, even two or three games down the line, there's, there's something needs to change. At the end of the day, that's got to be Pagano. No, no, of course. It's also, I can't remember if it was it's... Was Pagano just maybe supported the comments, or it was just the the the, the, the GM who, uh, in response, was a year and a half, two years ago, to uh, why they haven't sorted out the O line yet? Was uh, well, he's been playing behind a crap one for a few years now. He should be better at it. Just it's like Pagano, yeah. That's just oh, good god! Like get your head fucking looked at. My my thing is, I think we're getting to the point now in the season where no one's probably going to get turfed out mid season, like unless it happens in the next two weeks. I don't think anyone's swapping in week twelve, kind of thing, you know. Um, I reckon it's Bradley. I think he's going to be gone because he hasn't played. He hasn't coached them particularly well. He's had a whole lot of rope. He's put together a good roster in terms of they've got pieces on offense. They've got lots of pieces on defense. You see bright sparks from this team, and when you look at that roster and you think about the talent that's on it, what's the thing that's lacking? Like, what's the thing that has been a constant in all the down years with this team? It's going to be the coaching. Like he, he might be good at providing stability, good at helping them pick out players and things like that, but he's not necessarily a good head coach just because of that. In his entire time as head coach, they have not beaten a single team that have finished with a winning record. Ever. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, we were laughing about that about Kirk Cousins, who played for, you know, a season and a half, right? This is a coach who's had four or five years of rope, and he hasn't been able to beat a single team who's who's had a successful season. Like... I thought he was going to get gone after the London game. I'm surprised that even after the win, they didn't get rid of him, to be honest, because that was a shit win that they almost pissed away. Like, that was disgraceful. And I think they've got talented players. He's not getting performances out of them. From all accounts, he's a lovely guy, and I don't begrudge him, but he seems to be a pretty shitty head coach. So I think he has to get gone. That was always a very, very positive question there from Will. Thanks very much. We always love uh, a good bit of a vent. Um... So yeah, we're going to move on to the picks for next week. So first game up, Chicago at Green Bay. We're taking Green Bay across the board. Why is that, Harry? We're seeing a little more positivity from Chicago and a little less positivity from Green Bay, but you really feel those two teams' trajectories haven't crossed yet, particularly with this game being in Lambeau and Green Bay should be able to carve up a pretty bad Bears backfield. Yeah, you got to believe that. We've got uh, Giants travelling down to LA to take on the Rams. I've gone for the Rams. Fitz has gone for the Giants. Harry, once again, has gone for 7-9 bullshit. 
What is it this week? It's the Rams. Oh, all right, good. So I suppose we'll let you kick off. Or let you kick off. Why the Rams? Cool. Uh, because New York looked really good last week, and they're going to go to LA and lose because it's the Rams. Basically, um, we saw for some reason bizarrely LA's offense exist last week, which was really exciting. Uh, admittedly, against Detroit, but that's still you know they still showed suddenly they've got something a little bit different there, and it's not just Todd Gurley. Now they're actually obviously scheming around exploiting that. Kenny Britt played like a madman last year, and that was great to see. And it's almost like the sort of island of misfit toys that they've got there on offense mm. some of those pieces are now raising their heads we're seeing their defense get healthier now they're going to have players coming back who weren't there before you can see that made a huge difference to the way this team plays and new york are still despite the if you look at the numbers last week last, last week against baltimore they're very impressive but if you look at the way they played they kept losing their grip on the game they kept letting other teams back into it and they kept making mistakes and then relying on these huge miracle out of the ass plays like they always do to get them the win mm. and that isn't going to work week on week, and it's difficult to take that to LA and make that work. Yeah, Fitz Giants. Yeah, like like for me, the biggest matchup in this is the fact that like Tremaine Johnson was was missing in that Detroit game. They really, really missed him. I think if if he's missing again, Odell Beckham is going to have an absolute monster game again. I think Odell Beckham's one of those streaky kind of players. He's got his confidence up. He's not going to be facing any good quarterback if Tremaine Johnson is out. I could see him absolutely blowing up this this this, this LA uh, backfield. Like I think it'll it's one of these games that's almost impossible to predict because these teams are so streaky and so like so unable to put any consistency together. But I think in this case, like I think the Giants have their tails up and that should be enough to get them over an LA team, which I think just has too many issues right now. I think they're trending more towards the seven and the nine. I think that streak will come later in the season. Uh, fair enough. Like to be honest, I'm I'm, I'm on board with you guys on this. I think it's going to be a hard one to call. I'm kind of backing on the home team when the other team has to travel across the entire country. Also, never trust a man who married a kicking net. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, I think he's hoping that they have a little hairnet and then he can sort out that do. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> uh, next team hopes New Orleans at Kansas City. Uh, we've all taken Kansas City across the board. I think there's going to be an exciting game to watch. It's probably going to be closer than I would like because I think New Orleans have a very good offense. They also don't have a defense, so KC's offense might actually get rolling in this one. That'll be fun. Uh, we might properly see a big game for Jamal Charles. What I'm hoping for is essentially, and I think what we're all expecting, is KC's defense are able to step up in two or three spots and then playing against that Saints defense, especially when they're at home in Kansas City, they should be able to, to, to run the ball, dictate the pace of the game and slow down that New Orleans defense. So I think that's why we're going there. Minnesota Minnesota, Philadelphia, we've taken Minnesota across the board. Fitz? You know that scene in Jurassic Park when, when the T-Rex with the water cup and then, you know, they, like lots of people die? That, that's Philadelphia right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, maybe they're more like Raptors, really, because that defense is going to rip through that offensive line, uh, which is currently dealing with uh, a few injuries and suspensions uh, with yeah. Johnson out. And they're absolutely going to destroy Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz is bad at protecting himself, even when he was playing well. I think this is going to be a game where Minnesota continue to crush quarterbacks. Uh, I don't know if they'll actually do that much on offense, but they probably won't need to. More Minnesota defense, more winning. Uh, Indianapolis at Tennessee. This is Harry's game of the week. We've taken Tennessee across the board. Uh, Tell us a bit about this game, Harry. Uh, Yeah, this is not my game of the week because it's necessarily going to be a good game. But this is my game of the week because it's actually an important game, bizarrely, because AFC South... And, it, you know, it's one of those games that could be sort of those fun, sloppy type affairs, so it might actually not be horrible to watch. Basically, we're in a situation where the AFC South is just a gigantic mess, and in-division games are going to be particularly important because these teams are struggling to beat teams out of division for the most part. What I think is going to be 
quite good about this is that you've got a team with a good run game in Tennessee against a team with an absolutely non-existent run defense in Indianapolis. <laughs> On the other side of the ball, you've got an Indianapolis offense that in recent weeks has been absolutely explosive through the air. T.Y. Hilton is playing very, very well. Andrew yeah. Luck can, when given time, still throw uh, very, very well against one of the worst uh, defensive backfields in the league. So I think this is going to be very important, particularly for Indianapolis and in what I terms of what I talked about about Pagano, because this is the kind of game, Pagano loses this plus one of this could be the end of yeah. him, right? Because this could be... This is potentially, I mean, you can't really write off a team from winning the division in this until it's over because it's such a sore last season with Houston. But this one will put Indianapolis at a very significant disadvantage. I'm kind of excited to actually see a game where Luck can play as well as we know he can because I think this game gives him that opportunity to show off a bit. I think it'll be also really interesting to see how much damage DeMarco Murray and Henry, who is the type of back that Indianapolis really, really struggled to deal with, see LeGarrette Blunt has a chance to actually really go off in a game like this. So I'm actually just looking forward to this as in a game that's got implications for the playoffs and that's got potential real explosiveness. At the end of the day, I do think Tennessee are going to win because I think that run game is just going to prove completely unstoppable. Indianapolis will make mistakes trying to run out or try to play catch-up, but I think this could be a back-and-forth affair. This could be quite high-scoring, and I'm actually kind of looking forward to seeing it now. Uh, next up, Buffalo at Miami. Uh, good God. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be a fun one to watch. Uh, we've taken Buffalo across the board. Basic reason, Miami are dog shit. Even though they won this week, they are still dog shit. Buffalo have a good defence. They'll shut them down. Uh, J.H.I.'s looked good, so that might be interesting to see how he plays against a better kind of defensive front. But like, I, I, I just don't really see a scenario in which Miami wins this game. I think they were very lucky last week. Next up is Ronan's game of choice. Uh, so we've taken... It's Washington and Detroit. We've both taken Washington. He's taken Detroit. Well, on paper, I suppose, like, and, and on form, you would probably consider Washington to be favourite for this team. <laughs> I'm intrigued by this. This is like two teams which had very poor or, like, poor to average starts to the season, but have had a good streak. Washington are on a four-game win streak. They're looking like a real competitor in the NSC East and, and like that they might be legitimate competition for Dallas in the division. And Detroit have managed to put together a couple of wins, including what was a hard-fought and you know surprisingly fun game against LA. So for me, when I'm looking at this, I'm looking at two teams who are on the brink, I think, of going either way. These are both teams that could easily end up going on massive lose or win streaks. And for me, those are always kind of the most interesting. I think in Washington, they've established a run game. Matt Jones looks like a starter running back until presumably his back breaks for some reason, or his leg breaks, or whatever like that. And the defense has been surprisingly good at getting to the quarterback and actually getting a lot of pressure. Like Ryan Kerrigan has looked like the player that he often looks like before he gets injured. And I think that's really exciting for Washington. But on the other hand, we also know that Washington is the kind of team that can struggle against good teams. So the question is, is Detroit actually a competitive team this year? They certainly have a chance in the wildcard hunt. I don't think they're going to like pass out Minnesota, but they certainly have a chance in the wildcard hunt to be competitive with Green Bay within the division and within what is like what's looking like a fairly unequal NFC this time round. There's a set of good teams who are like running away with things in their respective divisions, but then a much larger morass of teams in the middle there. I think Detroit seem to have solved their problems in offense seemed to have adjusted for the loss of Amir Abdullah by going to the pass game and putting on Matt Stafford's shoulder. They've even managed to get Golden Tate back into the game after what was a horrendous like, few weeks to start the season. And like, I think Jim Bob Cooter, we all agree, has managed to do some pretty good things and have a pretty awesome name. The question mark is whether the defense can hold up. But I like Detroit right now. I think they're a team that's on a bit of a spin and like, can put together a good streak of wins. So in this case, 
it, despite maybe what on paper should be an advantage for Washington, I'm going to give it to Detroit at home. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Cleveland at Cincinnati. I've taken Cincinnati. Fitz has taken Cincinnati. Harry's taken Believe Land. Why Believe Land? <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> There's a whole lot of question marks there, beside there are, Cleveland. There are. One, normally I, I rank the question marks on one to three. This has got about eight or nine. Yeah, look, I, no, I, I can defend this. And that's the two things. Firstly, Cincinnati have not looked good this season. Uh, Cincinnati have struggled this season and look confused. They've come really undone in the last few weeks. And they look like a team that is missing uh, their their uh, Hugh Jackson quite badly. Um, actually, Marvin Lewis um, earlier this week had an interview where he basically said, "Yeah, we really miss we really miss Hugh Jackson, who's now seen Cleveland." Mm. Hugh Jackson's going to know how this team plays. Hugh Jackson knows his personnel very well from his time in Cincinnati. He knows what Andy Dalton is capable of. He knows Hill, Barnard, AJ Green. He knows where their weapons are and where the strengths and weaknesses of this team lie, particularly on the offensive side. Also. Cleveland uh, have actually had defensively some success against uh, Cincinnati historically. Joe Hayden, for example, always plays very, very well against uh, against AJ Green in, in one-on-one matchups. So you expect to see him shadowing Green around the field. What we've also seen is, is uh, I think it was last season where they held Andy Dalton to a two point zero passer rating mm. uh, in, in one of their wins. So I, like, I think this is a, a matchup that historically Cleveland have turned up for, and I know that's a very vague thing, but they have. Combine that with a head coach who is very familiar with the strengths and weaknesses of his opponent in a way that you aren't even normally with a division rival, and the fact that Cincinnati right now seem to be a little bit all over the place while Cleveland are coming off some competitive, tough losses. This would be one of those things that I think Cleveland this is like, this is where we turn the season around. You get to go to a division rival who are wobbling, who are considered to be much stronger than you, but might actually not be, and turn the season around. I think this is that kind of game that, for all this is, might be bullshit psychology, that bullshit psychology has, I think, a layer on top of what's already a good matchup that means that Cleveland have, I think, a just over 50-50 chance to win this game. Fair enough. Like, I think a lot of what you said also plays for Cincinnati, if you want to look at it that way. Cincinnati are going to know the type of offense that this guy runs because they've had him in-house for a while, so their defense are going to be used to playing against it in practice. They've also got less good weapons to complete that offense in in the Browns, so I think they're going to be able to deal with it more effectively than they were when they were playing their own O versus D in training times. I think, again, individual rival they're going to want to get up and turn their season around for it. I think that can also play to Cincinnati's favour. Also, them being at home can play it to their favour as well. I agree with you entirely that I think this is going to be a dog shit game and I could see Cincinnati losing it. This is one that Cleveland should have circled as a potential win for themselves. But I think they've got two wins. They want to hold a bit of pad at home. And as we discussed earlier, their um, their head coach might actually be at risk of losing his job if he can't get his shit together. I think this is one where Cincinnati are just going to be able to use their personnel to outclass an offense that they're used to dealing with because they had it in-house previously. Um, Oakland at Jaguars. Uh, we've taken Oakland across the board. Why is that, Fitz? Because the Jaguars suck. Uh, and Oakland look good. Like, like look at their respective records. Look at the tape. Basically, Oakland have a good offense. Their defense still has question marks, but it has solidified. Jacksonville are trashed here all over the place. They've won two games against two of the worst teams in the league. Oakland isn't a bad team. They lose. Yeah, no, 100%. Baltimore at New York Giants, or New York Jets, sorry. Uh, I've taken Baltimore. Harry's taken the Jets. Fitz has taken Baltimore. Uh, why the Jets, Harry? I don't know what's going on my picks this week. <laughs> Cleveland and the Jets. <laughs> we just spent all that time dumping on how terrible the Jets are. Cleveland, the Jets, and LA. Look, yeah, like, the, this is as much a vote against Baltimore as it is in favour of New York. I don't particularly like either team in this game. I don't particularly like either pick in this game. But 
the facts for me, New York have played reasonably well at home this season. They've had closer games at home than they have on the road. Baltimore at the moment look quite directionless. They are suddenly missing a lot of pieces on defense. Um, obviously, Suggs, uh, Jimmy Smith, I think, got a concussion or is being evaluated for concussion, so he may not play. Uh, CJ Mosley has been playing pretty much at half speed for the pretty much most of the season. Uh, They've obviously lost Smith and Wallace looks limited. There's a lot of injuries uh, for this Baltimore team. So I think that this is a kind of situation where New York are coming home after a really bad defeat. defeat. They're going to need to basically change what they're doing a bit. If they don't change what they're doing, they're probably going to lose. But I think that I have faith in Balls as a head coach to be able to make those defensive adjustments coming off of that game. Uh, Say, right, we actually have a really talented personnel here and we can really, really work with this. And that... With that home advantage, with the injuries Baltimore have on both sides of the ball, I think New York are going to be able to do enough to eke out a win here in what is probably going to be a very ugly, in-the-trenches uh, kind of game. No, fair enough. Fitz? Yeah, like, I agree with some of that, but like the Jets have just looked so bad. And I think they're really missing like David Harris, the linebacking core. Like the, the, like, the front three are very good, but they're having to move Richardson around just to fill in the gaps at the linebacking core. There's just so little on that defense. I think Baltimore should have enough to take advantage of that. I think, like, on offense, they've just stunk so bad. I think Baltimore should have enough. Like, Baltimore, I think this might be the first game Baltimore might actually win by a considerable amount. Uh, but knowing them, they'll probably still manage to make it a, like a last-minute like <laughs> field goal. Something ridiculous, anyway. San Diego at Atlanta. Uh, we've taken Atlanta across the board here. Uh, rationale, basically, Atlanta still have probably the top offense in the league at the moment, barring... You know, obviously New England stuff are looking good too, but they've been doing it for a couple of weeks. This is not, like, while it's a better defense than it has been up to this point, it's not anywhere near the level of Broncos slash Seahawks, so I can just imagine them tearing through them. I think San Diego will look good because it's Atlanta's defense won't stop them 100% and they'll be able to get Hunter Henry and a couple of those guys involved, but just overall Atlanta will be able to go off and one on them and outscore them in a game that will not have much in the way of defense from either team. Tampa Bay at San Francisco. I'm going to go to Fitz on this one. Tampa Bay across the board for us. Uh, why is this Fitz? Tampa Bay aren't good. They haven't really shown a lot, but San Francisco are absolute trash tier shit. Now they have tended to be better at home, but you know, like they've lost. Like if Carlos Hyde especially is that this is San Francisco is just really, 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 really bad. This isn't for Tampa Bay. San Francisco are bad. Tampa Bay can get a win because of that. No. And New England-Pittsburgh, we've taken New England across the board. Is it just because of the fact that they don't have their starting quarterback? (laughs) I think it's probably what's made it such an easy decision. I'd probably give New England the edge otherwise. But yeah, definitely without Ben Roethlisberger, you've got to be worried about Pittsburgh there, particularly with a New England team that's been quite good against the run so far this year and is going to come out expecting a lot of that. So yeah, I'd say New England will be fairly comfortable going into a game that was previously a bit of a question mark no of course of course uh next game up is actually my pick of the week seattle at arizona uh we've taken seattle across the board in this i the reason i picked it is just i think it's going to be an interesting one to see it's going to let us know where arizona is uh they're at home so they don't have to do the traveling so that's good they they've got a proper proper defense to play against in this one uh, i'd be very interested to see how they fare, even even in a loss, if they play well, that would be a good sign that they've turned a corner as a team. Seattle equally, they have to go down. This is a, this is a team that they want to have wins against, just in terms of seeding. Uh, they want to be able to, to to put down a marker here and 
as we said, Seattle's defense looked to get their stuff together, but their offense was still wobbly and wasn't at 100%. So this is a game where they can maybe show that a little bit more. Also, it's going to have to force Arizona most likely to do a few more things than they currently do, because Seattle's the type of defense that will target in on David Johnson and try and slow him down and make sure that they don't just have the option of run him 25 times and pass to him 10 times, and sure, we'll probably be in most games. So I think it's... An exciting game for both these teams. It's potentially a transitionary game for both these teams. And it's going to tell us a lot about what they're going to be towards the back end of the season. Whether they're going to be contenders or pretenders. And I think that's really exciting to watch. And then the final game of the week is Houston at Denver. Oh god. The revenge game of the <laughs> the, the crustacean sensation. Brock Lobster rolling into Denver. Uh, how much do we think Denver will win by? Fitz? Uh, a lot. 20, uh, 24 points. Harry? How tall is Brock Osweiler? 6'8". Right, convert that into centimetres that many. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't think they're going to win by 200 points, but I think it's going to be a substantial victory, probably about three touchdowns or so. Yeah. Uh, it turns out Denver probably won't roll over and die like Indianapolis did last week, so... Yeah, like I think barring, barring like garbage time stuff, like I think, I think they'll get up by about... 28 points and they'll take their foot off the gas in this game although that said you know we could see the struggles from the from the young quarterback uh, like they'll, they'll do more than enough to win but this is one where I think they'll be able to actually test out some bits of uh, like making amendments to their playbook and stuff because their defence can definitely keep them in this game um, but yeah so that's the games uh, let's see how, how, how they all work out uh, some of us will definitely be wrong in some spots because we disagree on some of the games Ah. No, no hero picks from you this week, Connor. No, I was surprised by this. Um, to be honest, but uh, yeah, I used up all of the heroism by picking Cleveland in the chance. <laughs> There's no heroism left for anyone else. Um, but yeah, so Awful. you're off to you're off to Waterford. I am indeed off to Waterford. I'm up. I'm up to Donegal to see the old the old homestead this weekend. Yeah, what about yourself, Fitz? Any plans for the weekend? Uh, nothing major plan. But uh, before we finish up, I think uh, it would be uh, ill of us not to mention. Our sometime contributor Sean Butler, oh, yes. who today received his PhD in international uh, criminal law, I believe. Uh, so that's a major achievement for Dr. Sean Butler. So yeah. I'd like to, you know, extend our gratitude to him and uh, say well done to him on what is a, obviously a significant achievement. Oh, big time! Yeah. Well done to himself. Now the, the the next thing we now need him to do is we need to get him a new woman whose surname is is uh, Baker, so he can go double barreled and he'll be Dr. Butler Baker. <laughs> I just love the idea of him having three different job titles as his name. <laughs> but no, congrats the car book. Congrats to Sean. I've never, I, I, I've never seen him happier wearing a hat. But yeah, we must have a look now and see about getting him on, uh, getting him on another podcast at some point soon. We'll, uh, we'll arrange him to, to swing on up. Uh, I think he enjoyed his last two. Yeah, I think he, I think he did. Uh, also, voice, he's, voice of the people. Sean yeah, he's, 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 man. He's also fought, like even if he went, you know, half and half, he's fallen about uh, thirty-five games behind the Pickhams. <laughs> yeah, he's still got a better percentage record than you do. So yeah, yeah. Well, that's what you get. If I just stuck with my first week ones, I had a better percentage record than I do. <laughs> <laughs> we all did, I think. Yeah, I think we've all regressed. Yeah, I think uh, we regressed from that point. Yeah, we we got our first ones uh, pretty good, and then we fucked up from there. But yeah, so uh, I suppose that's grand. Uh, like we said, any comments, questions, any that kind of stuff, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, email, all those things. Uh, stay away if you're a racist. We don't want to hear from you. But yeah, it's bye for myself, bye for Harry, goodbye, bye for Fitz. Bye. It's been all four quarters podcast, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>